Amen. Let's pray as we stand. Almighty Father, we come uh, now to you. and uh, We ask that you would give us uh, deep insight uh, that, that we need to have. So uh, give us the insight that we need. Uh, uh, particularize it to uh, our particular situations, um, backgrounds, understandings. But above all, we want to know you. Um, we want to know Jesus Christ. We want to uh, know and experience the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So do whatever it takes to get that done in our lives, uh, and we invite you in Jesus' name. Amen. Take a seat. So uh, as we know, uh, today is Trinity Sunday. Um, Josh started off with that big Athanasian Creed, which I bet was new to almost all of us. Um, it's a big old honking creed, and then we just said the Apostles' Creed. There's a lot of Trinity today. And um, why, why, why? Who cares about the Trinity? It's just a comp complex theological math problem, right? No, you will not be surprised for me to say. Today, I want to look at the Gospel reading and point out just one little thing. This isn't the fullness of what the Trinity means, just one little thing that the Trinity means, and here it is. The Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity, liberates us from toxic religion. And it's going to take us a while to get there, but let me explain. I don't know anybody, uh, do you? I don't know anybody who critiques toxic religion as thoroughly, as insightfully, and as devastatingly as Jesus does. And in the Gospel reading, which is the, the second reading we just had, turn over there, um, we get to kind of, this is the traditional reading for this day, we get to watch Jesus graciously, kindly, but absolutely wipe the floor with one of the leading religious people of his day. And as he just wipes the floor with this guy called Nicodemus, he also at the same time gives Nicodemus a new lease on life. And I think this story is a, it's just a tremendous gift to us, and here's why. It seems to me you can tell me later if you agree. It seems to me that everybody can agree, almost, that religion can be a very dangerous thing. Uh, 10 or 15 years ago, I forgot exactly when it was, uh, Christopher Hitchens published his book, uh, God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. Do you remember that book? And at the time, that was a really uh, provocative title. It was a really provocative thesis. Today, 10 or 15 years later, whatever it is, I think it, it, I don't think it's very provocative anymore. I think a lot of us just kind of in, instinctively think that that's probably at least partially true. And a lot of people, including people here in this room, are desperately afraid of at least certain types of religion. And so it brings up the question, what does Jesus have to say to toxic religion? However, by the same token, we can, probably a lot of us can look uh, and think of uh, examples of, of the way that religion can be toxic and terrible, but by the same token, it's simplistic, isn't it? It's simplistic to just reduce all religion to the same terrible iterations of its worst examples. Um, because we can think of someone like Martin Luther King Jr. just 50 years ago, he changed the world. How did he change the world? Well, if you were to ask him, and he said this by his own speeches and sermons, that it grew out of his conviction about who God was. Or you can look 200 years ago, fewer, fewer of us will know this name, but William Wilberforce was a London parliamentarian who used all of his influence and prestige and power over the course of years and years and years to uh, seek to abolish the African slave trade, one of the very first to really get progress done in that respect. Why did he do it? Well, he said that he did it 
because of Jesus Christ. And this passage in particular was crucial to his life. So here at Emmanuel, we want to be classical Christians. We don't want to be toxic Christians. We want to be classical Christians. And one of the things that that means is that we are continually coming to the Bible and asking Jesus to critique every ounce of toxic religion that he finds within our hearts and replace it with his alternative. And here's the funny thing. By the end of the sermon, we get to find out that the key to classical Jesus-style Christianity is the doctrine of the Trinity. But this, this passage, this gospel reading, sort of brings us to the doctrine of the Trinity kind of from an angle, from a different angle that we don't expect. All right? You don't have to be with me yet, but we're going to get there, and we're going to first watch Jesus critique uh, Nicodemus's religion. Take a look at the reading, okay? Let me uh, set the scene just a little bit. This is towards the beginning of Jesus' ministry, but he's starting to get popular, and he's kind of on the religious circuit, uh, religious teacher circuit. And he's already controversial. He's controversial for a bunch of reasons. He's controversial on the one hand because he didn't really fit into any religious party of his day. But he's also controversial already because just before this story, Jesus had gone into the temple. He had seen a whole bunch of the terrible things that were going on. Particularly, he saw the greed that some of the business people um, were, so to speak, perpetrating on the religious, on, on the uh, worshipers of the day. And he just pitches a fit. He, he I mean, it's a demonstration, but he really gets angry. And he starts flipping over tables. He drives out some of the money traders and things like that. And he says, uh, the temple needs to be reformed. Now, when he did that, that was very provocative. Some people loved it. Some people hated it. But he was very controversial. And then, just a few nights later, this happens. Look at verse 1. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night... He's a little bit nervous and said to Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, pause. Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He's at the top of the religious game. And it sounds like that he was one of the few Pharisees who, who kind of at least was open to Jesus. And he pays Jesus one of the best compliments Jesus ever gets, right? Especially from a Pharisee. He says, Jesus, we know you're from God. Now, if somebody came to you and said that, how would you respond? I would respond saying, thank you. I'm glad somebody has noticed. Um, <laughs> thank you so much. That is so kind and polite. And you know what? I think you're from God, too. Yay. You know, I'd say something like that. What does Jesus say? Look over at verse 3. Jesus answers him and says, Truly, truly, I say to you, Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, that's obscure language to you and me, but it was devastating to Nicodemus. Let me explain why. Jesus is saying, in so many words, he's saying, Nicodemus, listen, um, your religion is never going to get you to the kingdom of God. It's never going to get you to God. And Jesus says you need more than just a new insight. You need more than an adjustment. You need, Nicodemus, a whole new life. Nicodemus, your religion is fundamentally flawed. Now, pause. Let me give a little bit of background on the Pharisees, and then we'll come back to Nicodemus and Jesus, okay? 
All right, go back to the Old Testament, uh, the Hebrew Scriptures. The Old Testament is a long story of God's kindness and care to Israel, and on the other hand, Israel responding to God's care and kindness by rejecting God, and regularly deciding that um, they're better off charting their own course, they don't need God, they're regularly saying, get away from me, God, in so many words. And it never goes well for Israel when that happens. Um, one scene sort of uh, uh, stands out that Jesus references later, and it's a scene that comes from the book of Numbers, uh, chapter 21. What happens is this. God has uh, rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt. God has taken Israel into the desert. There's no food, there's no water, so God supplies. Every single day, God supplies food and water for Israel, and you know, that's a good deal. However, Israel gets sick of the food, and they start to complain. And not only do they complain, they start to riot. They rebel and riot against Moses, their leader, but then also they rebel and they riot against God. And then... God does a weird thing. This is one of those odd stories in the Old Testament that makes us kind of squirm, but here it is. God gets their attention by sending all these snakes into their camp. Now, it's a very odd story, but just go with it for a little bit. Why does God send the snakes? Uh, snakes are scary because they, they bite you and they kill you, right? That we can all agree, I think, on that. And that's part of the point that God's making to Israel. It was as if God was saying to Israel, Israel, listen, um, I just rescued you, I'm taking care of you, um, but I need to break it to you. You are, you are selfish and you are arrogant. And your selfish arrogance is dangerous. In fact, it is as dangerous as dancing on a viper's nest. Israel, I take care of you. Humble yourself. Stop it. Trust me, and I'll take care of you. Now, I tell you that story because it captures uh, a pattern that just runs throughout the rest of the Old Testament. It, it was like Israel never really got rid of the snakes. Not the literal snakes, but a figurative snake. They never really got rid of their self-reliant arrogance. Now, the Bible uses the word sin for it. And it just continually, throughout the story of Israel, it leads to national collapse after national collapse. And that goes on for hundreds of years. And then, hundreds of years later, the Pharisees emerge. Now, part of what the Pharisees are doing is they're saying, listen, guys, we have, our nation has collapsed a lot of times because of our selfish arrogance. Here's the plan. We need regulations. We need to regulate ourselves. Now, before you discount that, think about 10 years ago, the financial crisis. There's a financial crisis here in the United States and around the world, and how do we respond? Well, we say, well, we need to guard ourselves against having that, that financial collapse again. We need to regulate ourselves to keep us from happening again. And that's what the Pharisees are doing. It's what they tried to do. And so what they said is, all right, we're going to all follow the biblical commands, but then we're also going to add uh, additional rules uh, beyond those so that we just don't even get close to noncompliance. So we're going, they were religious regulationists. So it was great, right? So finally, Israel's uh, self-reliant uh, self arrogance was resolved, right? And that's the end of the story, isn't it? Ah, you know enough to say no. No, because if you come to the Gospels, one of the striking things about the Gospels is that the most self-centered and arrogant people you find are who? Oh dear. Are who? 
The Pharisees, yes, yes, yes. That wasn't, a, ta- that wasn't a, a trick question. Yeah, they're just remarkably self-centered and arrogant. And this is where you begin to see how uh, toxic religion works. The whole Pharisee project was aimed at containing the snake of self-centered, arrogant sin. But it ends up that inadvertently, they didn't mean to do this, but inadvertently they put the snake in a cage, so to speak, but it just bred. It just grew. Meaning, they got more self-centered and arrogant the more they tried to cage it. Why? Well, think with me. Um, Imagine for a minute that you're really, really good at being a religious uh, self-regulator. Okay? What will you think of people who are not good at being religious self-regulators. If you're not careful, you'll think badly of them and highly of yourself because you've done all the hard work, you've made all the right choices, therefore you get the reward. But notice, notice, the whole thing is you, you, and you. You're your own hero, you get the reward, you get the praise, and without noticing it, the whole system feeds the snake. It feeds self-centered arrogance. And by the way, this is one of the, way, this is one of the explanations for why um, uh, religious regulationists often end up being hypocritical. Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever been shocked by that in yourself? Why? Because if the Bible's right, then all immorality comes from self-centered arrogance. All sin is different forms of the same snake. And religious regulationism tries to restrain that snake, that immorality, puts a a cage around it, but ironically, it ends up just feeding it inside the cage, but just feeding it with self-centered arrogance, and it just grows, and it grows, and you can spend years as a religious regulationist thinking that you've got a strong cage around the snake, but then, after a while, you found that all these years, you've just been feeding the same snake until it just grows and grows and grows, and the cage bursts and you cheat. You cheat at work. You cheat on your spouse. You you cheat in your heart by indulging that resentment that you enjoy. And then you're shocked at your behavior. And everybody else is shocked at your behavior too. And that's why Jesus looks at Nicodemus and he says, it's not just a tweak. You need to be born again. You need a whole new life, Nicodemus. Now, I can imagine somebody coming back and saying, ah, yes, that's right, that's brilliant, absolutely. Religious regulationism is terrible. You know what we need? We need education. We need to be able to have the resources to think critically so that we can make up our own mind about right and wrong. Um, We don't need religious regulationism. What we need is a kind of moral individualism so that we, we should all live our own truths and not somebody else's truth. It's compelling, isn't it? Well, go back to the story. Nicodemus is more than just a regular old Pharisee. He's not a moral individualist, but he is educated. And he does think critically. And he is trying to make up his own mind about things. Look back at the story. Nicodemus is breaking ranks with his party by just showing up and talking to Jesus. Yes, he does it at night, but nevertheless, he's pushing the boundaries. And he calls Jesus a rabbi. Nicodemus was a rabbi. He calls Jesus a rabbi, and he thinks that he is sitting down with a peer so that they can together kind of dialogue together and hash things out and figure out the most rational way forward. 
He's an educated, independent thinker. But Jesus still doesn't buy it. Verse 10. After a couple questions, Jesus says, are you a teacher of Israel and yet you still don't understand these things? Which means several things, but it includes that Jesus does not think that uh, Nicodemus' education and his critical thinking skills and his ability to, self, or to, to uh, invent uh, and determine for himself the best moral path forward, he doesn't think that that's going to cut it. And it's not because Nicodemus is dumb. Nicodemus is brilliant. It's because moral individualism still feeds the exact same snake. Imagine you're really, really good at critically thinking your moral path forward in life. What will you think of other people who are not good at critically thinking through their life and determining their path. You'll think badly of them and highly of yourself. Because you're the one that understands the issues. You're the, understand, you're the person that's been woke to the world and the various issues that are important. You're the one that goes to all the right meetings. And you're also the one that can look at religious regulationists and say, those people are so self-righteous. Right? But nevertheless, it's still you, you, you. You're your own hero, just like the religious regulationists. You get the reward and the praise and if you're not careful, you, you will enjoy looking down on self-righteous people. The problem is, both systems still feed the same snake. They still feed this self-centered arrogance. So what's the solution? The solution is that somehow the snake has to die. And this is where the doctrine of the Trinity enters. Really? Yes! Look at verse 13. Jesus says, No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Okay, what does that mean? Well, among many other things, it means that every human attempt to reach up to God, whether the, a religious approach, whether a kind of individual moral uh, de, uh, determine-your-own-path approach, both of them end up feeding the snake. Neither of them are able to achieve what it is that they seek out to, to do, and they both fuel selfish arrogance. However, the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity, tells us a story about the Son of Man, the Son of God, coming down. The direction is turned the other way. The Son of God comes down to us and does something remarkable. Let me say it differently. A lot of us think of the Trinity as just a, a difficult theological math problem, right? God is one, God is three, how does that work? But when the Bible actually rolls out the doctrine of the Trinity, it does it as a story. And the story tells us that the one true God of the Old Testament is also, at the same time, a conspiracy of kindness who comes to save us from the snake of our selfish, arrogant sin. The Son of Man comes down. And look how it works in verse 14. Jesus, continuing the same thought, says, As Moses lifted up the serpent, the snake, in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, Jesus is referencing that story about Israel and the snake. And in that story, Moses uh, makes a sculpture of a snake, a bronze snake, and puts it on a pole and lifts it up. And whoever looked at the snake on the pole was healed because that was a sign that they were trusting in God and not in themselves anymore. And so what Jesus is saying here 
in the context of the rest of the, the book of, of John and the rest of the Bible, he's saying that God the Father has sent God the Son to become human. But not only has God the Father sent God the Son to become human, God has also sent the Son to become the snake. Jesus becomes the snake. Because when Jesus was lifted up on the pole, lifted up on the cross... In a remarkable way, he became sin. He took all of our selfish arrogance upon himself. And on the cross, he substituted himself both for the religious regulationist and also for the moral individualists. And in a remarkable way, Jesus became the snake that we have all our lives fed. And when he died, the snake died too. And therefore, the Trinity is the only way to kill the snake. It's why trusting in the Trinity is so central to Christianity. It's a thing that turns, it turns Christianity into a whole new thing. Just keep on thinking about it. Um, religious regulationism and you know, educated moral individualism, both they both feed the snake. They make you the hero, and therefore they're continually feeding selfish arrogance. But if God the Son became human, and if God the Son became the snake and then dies and then kills the snake, then you're not your own hero anymore. Jesus is your hero. The Trinity has become your hero. And all that's left for us to say is, thank you. And there's no arrogance left in thank you. And not only does it kill our arrogance, it also kills our selfishness. Because when you're looking at God, the son who has become the snake, who has died, and now, therefore, the, your own selfish, arrogant snake is dead. When you're looking at him, you're no longer, for the, maybe for the first time, you're no longer looking at yourself. And all of a sudden, God is no longer primarily your regulator. God is now your rescuer. There's a big difference between an auditor and a rescuer. You ever been audited? Don't worry, it'll happen at work. It's lots of fun. No, it's not fun at all. And when you see that Jesus, when the Trinity has become your rescuer, then actually you will obey. You'll actually obey more than a religious regulationist, but you'll obey differently. You used to obey the commands to keep the snake in its cage. But now, you obey because you love your rescuer. And the difference between those things is massive. It's a far stronger motive to obey. And it's more joyful. But it will also humble you in a way that moral individualism can never do. Because instead of thinking highly of yourself and badly of others, you'll think less of yourself and more about others. Because when you see the Trinity, and when you trust the Trinity, then you see that the Trinity is this conspiracy of kindness to save us. And you'll see that that Trinity is not just a religious additive. It's not just an interesting theological math problem, but it's a whole new life. When the Trinity's story becomes your story of rescue, then you get a new life. You, you become born again. And so I guess the question is, is that your story? And let me ask you a couple questions. When you think of, let me use different words, when you think of religious conservatives, is there a part of your heart that kind of goes, ugh? Or on the other hand, when you think of religious liberals or moral liberals, what does your heart do? And if you find that your heart cringes a touch, 
then ask yourself whether or not that cringe is actually the hiss of a snake that's still in your heart that's just in a cage, but you love despising the other side. On the other hand, when you think of whoever you consider to be your cultural opponent, insert who, whoever works for you, do you love the idea of the Trinity showing mercy to them? Do you find your heart warm saying, thank you, Lord, that you're showing mercy to people who kind of drive me crazy otherwise? And if that's happening, then that can be a sign that you're trusting in Jesus and growing in humble obedience. And that's the kind of classical Christianity that really can transform people and transform communities and nations and churches and all sorts of things. That's the kind of transformation that happened in Nicodemus because the next time we find Nicodemus, you know what he's doing? He has the courage to stand up in front of the Pharisees and their counsel and say, you're not treating Jesus right. This guy deserves a fair trial. And then after Jesus' death, he can stand up to Rome and he can say, give me that man's body. I'm going to publicly bury him. He wasn't, any, he wasn't slinking around at night anymore. He was courageous. It's the same kind of Christianity that can drive William Wilberforce to spend his whole life serving others and emancipating and ending the slave trade. That's classical Christianity. And that's what we need. But the thing is, remember, you can't perform your way into classical, real Christianity. You got to get rescued into it. You got to get born into it again. And how does that happen? Well, you've been wondering about the third member of the Trinity. The third member of the conspiracy of kindness. God the Father sends God the Son to kill the snake, but then God the Father sends the Holy Spirit to give us faith. Jesus says, Nicodemus, you've got to be born again. You've got to be born again of the Spirit. And that's what Jesus says to us today. Jesus wants to critique all of our toxic religion. And he wants to kill the snake that's still kind of slithering around in there and that we're good at hiding. But another way to say the exact same thing is to say that Jesus wants to give us his Holy Spirit. Because when Jesus gives us his Holy Spirit, what happens is we stop trusting ourselves, we stop trusting in the cage that we create, and rather we trust in Jesus. And we find ourselves coming to Jesus and we come with the snake out of the cage, our arrogant self-reliance, and we say, Jesus, here it is in all its ugliness. I want to renounce it. I can't renounce it. I, I just cling to it all the time, but I want to renounce it. Will you grant me to renounce it? And as you find in, in yourself that desire, that's the beginning of the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart. Is it happening? You come to Jesus saying, I want to renounce that. That's the Spirit working, giving you faith. And then you find that Jesus has taken the snake and nailed it to the cross. And you see it wither and rile and die. And then you find yourself with eyes fixed on Jesus saying, Jesus, you are my rescuer. And then with your eyes fixed on Jesus as your rescuer, you find yourself crying out, looking at God the Father, no longer as your auditor and your regulator, but rather now as your Father, saying, Father, I've been adopted into your family, and now my fundamental identity is as a child, your beloved child. That's what the epistle was all about, but we're not going to preach that sermon today. And all of it is a gift from beginning to end. And that's why we love the Trinity. Amen.